Nehemiah chapter 10. Let me preface our reading by saying this, introducing you to what is taking place. People of Israel have gone back to their lands. They're in captivity in Babylon and now are returning. A group returned under Zerubbabel and they rebuilt the temple. And then a second group returned under Nehemiah and they rebuilt the walls. And we see now a revival taking place. And in chapter 8, Ezra, I love this. I wish I'd go back in time and be there to see what takes place in chapter 8 when Ezra stands up on the pulpit from the break of dawn. That was probably about 6 or 6.30 in the morning. And he reads the scripture and expounds upon it until noon every day for seven days. And the people came and stood every day for six or seven hours as they listened to the word of God. They repented. The Levites repented. The people repented. And revival broke out among God's children. And now we see in chapter 10 the fruits of this revival. We'll start reading in verse 28. And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers... The Nethanims and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone having knowledge and having understanding, they claved to their brethren, their nobles, and they entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. And that the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. There's nothing more exciting than experiencing Holy Spirit revival. You know, when you get out of sorts and away from God, there's nothing more miserable than being in that condition. But when a nation, when a people return to God and truly repent, determine to establish God's law, not just in his house, but in their hearts, it's an exciting time, and that's what was taking place at this point in Israel's history, we see there's a general excitement, but the fruit of that revival was a commitment to God. And it's amazing, this generation, how we're so quick to make commitments to everything else except to God. We like to claim the vows or something of a different dispensation. That's the Old Testament. We're living in the day and age of grace. And let me just say this. When we read scripture, we read about the end times and the great delusion, the great lie that'll bring God's people and the world into an apostate state. I believe a big part of that is what we're seeing take place in our generation. And that is a misunderstanding concerning grace. In this generation, it is swept through Churches, we're not just talking about different denominations, but even the independent Baptists where we've misunderstood and mispreached grace. And now grace simply means permission, divine permission to do whatever you want to do and disregard the laws of God. Now grace means I can do what I want to do because I'm in a different dispensation. I'm no longer under the law. I'm no longer under any of that. And Christ came to magnify the law. And if you live just in the New Testament, if you followed just one book, any of the Pauline epistles, if it was just the book of Philippians or Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians, you would struggle the rest of your Christian life just to do what's written in those small books containing four, five, six chapters. But I believe, yes, in this day and age, we are to express commitment out of a heart of love for God. And when you stood up, you said your wedding vows, when you made that commitment, that was an expression of love. I'm going to be faithful to you until death. We ought to make the same kind of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when revival took place in their hearts, you know what they did? They made vows. I want you to see four of them this morning. 
vows, commitments that they made to God. Look what it says in verse 29. They clave to the brethren, their nobles. Look what they did. They entered into a curse and into an oath to do what? To walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. So the very first thing that they did when things were made right and God was working their hearts, they made a commitment. They took a holy vow, signed and sealed before God, we will walk in God's law. Wouldn't it be great if everyone in this hot storm this year said, I'm going to read God's word. Now, it's hard to walk in God's word if you're not reading it. If you're not studying it, if you're not learning it, there's no way to live it. You've got to read it in order to heed it. You've got to make it a part of your daily life. You want an active Holy Spirit working inside of you. But you want to say, verbalize your commitment and say, whatever I see in this book, that's what I'll live. I don't want to live by my opinion. I don't want to live by man's creeds or laws. I want to live according to this blessed book. Whatever God says, that's my law for life. I want to see it, and then I want to live it. In the people's congregation, we're not talking about one person, one family, one tribe, but the nation in general, everyone that had understanding, here are thousands, hundreds of thousands of adults standing there. Ezra standing on the pulpit. I love it. Standing on top of the pulpit. Preaching for six or seven hours at a time. And the people say, we are going to take a holy vow and let God curse us if we stray from keeping our vow. Everything that we see in that book, we will do. This alone would be life-changing. Can you imagine if just this crowd stood up this morning at the invitation, everyone raised their hands to heaven and said, God, whatever you've written in your book, we promise we take a solemn vow this morning to do everything that is written in your book. Most would be scared out of their wits. Everything that's written in the book of the law, preacher, do you understand? Yes, I've read it many, many times, dozens of times. But it is in my heart, and I hope it's in the heart of this people to say, let me ask you this, do you believe God would write anything in this book that would be harmful for our lives, our joy, our marriages, or our children? Now what this world does is harmful. Even its laws, you've seen over the past few months, states that have legalized smoking marijuana. The law says it is legal in our states to smoke weed that is harmful. Logic alone tells you if you take a weed, you light it, and then inhale it, that's probably not a good thing for your body. Now, knowing that God has our best interest in mind, why would we be so slow? Why would we be so resistant to obeying what he's written in his word knowing he has a perfect track record. And everyone that's kept this law has been blessed. So why is it that we wouldn't be in a hurry to say, God, I want to find out what's in your word. And once I know what's in there, I want to obey and submit myself to your word. And guess what will happen? When you have revival take place in your heart, you'll make the same commitment. You'll say, God, whatever is written in your word. Now, when you're far from God, you'll say just the opposite. I don't care what's in your word. I've already determined what I'm going to do in my home, the way I'm going to dress, and my daily actions, and my habits, and my friendships. I've already made a determination. But when the Holy Spirit begins to move and begin to work, you'll come to church excited. It won't just be Sunday morning. No one will have to call you. No one will have to push you. You'll be here Sunday night. You'll be here Wednesday night. During the week, you'll have the Word of God open. You'll be studying. You'll be saying, Holy Spirit, show me, lead me, guide me. I want to live by your word. I want my marriage to be saturated in your word. I want my kids to live by the principles of your word. That's when you know revival is taking place in your heart. You won't be forced into any of those kind of commitments. 
you will joyfully enter into those commitments. Look what it says in verse 28. There was a second commitment that was made here. The rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, the porters, the singers, all they that did, what's it say? Separated themselves from the people. Preacher, do you believe in separation? Yes, because this book believes in separation. Now let me ask you a question. You have a world out here that Friday night and Saturday night and then once again tonight, they'll go down there to the bars and they'll drink themselves into such a state of drunkenness that they can't even drive themselves home. They'll wake up in their own vomit. They'll wake up the next morning in a bed with someone they don't even know. There's a world out there. There'll be people that'll tattoo themselves from their ankles to the top of their head. If they can, they will commit adultery and they will fornicate and they'll get high. Now, that's not the type of lifestyle that I want to live. It's not hard to separate myself from someone with a filthy mouth. How many of you really enjoy that? You work with someone and it just, it just pours out filthiness. Endless wickedness from the jokes and everything that they're entertained by and laugh at and they speak of. It's just constant rot. It's not hard. Why is it that a Christian finds it so hard to separate himself from that kind of lifestyle or that kind of behavior? And here's what they said. When revival took place and the Holy Spirit was working, they said we willfully. Now, I understand all of us have to live in a world that is unsaved, distant from God. We have to communicate. We have to work in that environment. But if you have a problem separating yourself from that, you have a heart condition. Because the Holy Spirit will lead you to say, be kind, be loving, be gracious. Amen? Be compassionate. Pray for their souls. Hurt when they hurt. But to willfully participate in that lifestyle and have no desire to separate yourself from wickedness means you have a heart condition. If I have an evening free, I want to be with Christians that love God. If I have a Saturday when I can get with someone in barbecue, I want someone that's going to talk about scriptural things, ministry. I don't want anyone who's going to depress me with their complaints and their gripes and their misery and their sinful lifestyle and brag about their sexual exploits. I don't want to be around. I willfully separate from that. And they made a commitment. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Christians, if you have a Holy Spirit living inside of you, there ought to be environments to make you feel very uncomfortable. You ought to feel comfortable in the house of God with believers, Christians that love God. You ought to feel uncomfortable in a world without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And young people, you should never consider dating someone that is unsaved that because if you date someone, they ought to be a candidate for marriage. And if you date someone that is unsaved, that means eventually you're going to end up unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Here's what God says. What Concord hath Christ with Belial. What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. God has said, I will dwell in them. And when he dwells in you, he makes a difference in you. He changes your heart. He changes your desire. He changes your associations. And then he says in verse 17, Wherefore come out from among them 
and be ye separate. This wasn't about an ethnic pride. This wasn't about a sense of superiority. This was about a Christian nation understanding the importance of separating themselves and saying this is about our worship. This is about honoring God. In order to do that, we have to separate ourselves from that kind of lifestyle. Now, your relationship with an unsaved world is going to nullify the distinct difference that God wants in your life, in your witness, in your behavior. He wants a clear distinction. And they took a vow. They made a commitment. And they said, whatever's written in this book of the law, we will obey it. We will separate ourselves. And they said part of that, we're not going to give our daughters to the other nations of this world. And we're not going to bring in the unsaved girls of this world for our young men. I don't want my two daughters marrying an unsaved man. I want a man that is a firm believer in Bible principles that has a Holy Spirit of God indwelling in him, guiding him, someone faithful to the house of God. There was a third commitment. Look what it says in verse 31. And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it. This is our commitment. We won't purchase on the Sabbath or on the holy day that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. They made a commitment to keep the Sabbath as a holy day. Now, we do understand the Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel. We are not Jews. You're not under the law. We know this was given during the law. So we understand we do not have to keep the Sabbath. But we do understand that God ordained a holy day, a day that is supposed to be separated unto him. We also understand the day and age of grace. That's the first day of the week. That's why we meet on Sunday. One of the best things you can do for your marriage, for your home, for your children, for your spiritual walk this year is say, I'm going to make a commitment to be faithful to the house of God. I love the house of God. I love the people of God. This is an old building. We've been able to remodel here and there. But to me, it doesn't even matter what the building looks like. We're talking about buying chairs and continuing to remodel. But I don't need this place to be beautiful to enjoy it because this is God's house. And I love everything about God's house. I love the pulpit. I love these old pews. I love the book. I love the friendships here. I love the ministries. I love 1300 Red Street because that represents God's meeting place with us. No one's ever had to force me to come here. No one's ever had to make a phone call. No one's had to check on me. And when God does a work in your heart, you experience revival. You know what you'll do? You'll make a commitment to be in God's house. You'll say if there's an empty space on that pew, it won't be because my family and I are out on the lake or out hunting. And I've had people ask me, preacher, we've got five hours in between services. Do you want to go fishing? Do you want to go? No, absolutely not. Well, it's a day of rest. No, it's a day separated to God and for his use. I don't want there to be any chance at all. First of all, I'd feel very uncomfortable. But second of all, I don't want there to be any chance that I miss a service. Knowing my poor fortune and my failure to resist temptation, I'd probably see the biggest buck of my life at 5.15. Be tempted, do I pull the trigger? I know there's no way that I can clean this deer and get it home and be at church on time. I'll just call Pastor Robert and have him sing songs until I make it into the service. Can you imagine if you had a preacher like that? I'm just going to totally resist the temptation. I understand this is God's holy day, and now people use it for everything except a day separated and sanctified for God. Now, for children of God, why is it so hard to separate one day for Him? We have no problem with a boss or a company that requires five or six days out of our week, but God asks for a day that is to be set apart and when you are truly in a state, in a mind of revival, that will not be something that is pushed or forced upon you, but something out of joy and gratitude and love. You say, I want to be in God's house. I want to be with God's people. If I had it my way, we would have an 8 o'clock service, a 10 o'clock service, a 3 o'clock service, a 5 o'clock service, and another 8 o'clock service. 
but I know half of those I would be all alone. <laughs> so I have yet to schedule that. I love the songs that we sing. I love to hear the pianists and the uh, trumpet players. I love our music, and Pastor Robert's done a fantastic job. I love going back and seeing the ministries taking place and watching those young people as they come into Donald's class. And I even enjoy hearing those babies scream because I can walk out, <laughs> shut the door, and say, I'll see you again in two hours. There was another commitment, and this is what we want to really speak on this morning. This was a commitment to support God's work. And this is what we see in verse 32 through 39. Nine times we see the phrase, the house of our God. Now when we talk about a commitment to the house of our God, we're not just talking about a financial commitment. We're talking about a commitment to be faithful. A commitment to attend every service. A commitment to be involved in the ministries. A commitment to support the leadership. A commitment to soul win and bring others to the house of our God. So this is all encompassing. We're not just talking about a financial commitment. But everyone here that's a member of Capital City ought to make a commitment this year to financially support the ministries of Capital City Baptist Church. Now, if we were out meeting in a park today, we didn't have a light bill, we didn't have any bills or any ministries, and we'd just go out there and meet in the cool weather, and everybody had their jackets on and smelling the sweet cedar of this city and the pollens, and eyes are running and nose are running and people are sneezing, and we say, praise the Lord, we don't have any water bills. If you need to use the bathroom, you're going to have to drive over to the local HEB, but hey, thank God, no electric bills, no water bills no taxes, no fees, no ministry obligations, then I could understand your enjoyment with not having any financial obligation or participation in the work of God. Aren't you glad this morning we're going to have the sun shining right this half of the auditorium is sitting there with their umbrellas trying to shade their faces from the sun. Cedar settled in on this crowd. We listen to more sneezing than preaching. But we have a nice building and a nice facility. But all of that costs money and thankfully we can participate and here's what they said as a community of believers, verse 32, also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with the third part of a shekel for the service of the, here it is, the first time, the house of our God. Look at how the end of verse 33, speaking of the different offerings that were being brought in verse 33, he closes with a statement, for all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34, we cast the lots among the priests, the Levites, and the people for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. Verse 35, to bring the first fruits of our ground, the first fruits of all the fruit trees, year by year into the house of our God. Verse 36, to bring it to the house of our God, under the priests that minister in the house of our God. Are you understanding the connotation? Everything centered around the house of God. And when these people experienced revival, suddenly their life once again revolved around the house of God and they made a commitment to the house of God and to giving to the house of their God. I want you to see several things about their giving. It was a committed giving. Look what it says in verse 32. Also we made ordinances for us to what? Charge ourselves yearly. How many of you have ever used direct bill pay? Now, in this day and age, you can go in and you don't enjoy it, but it's the simplest way at times to pay the bills when my daughter got her braces. With that office being so loving and so kind. They said, well, listen, we just want to help you with this bill. And what we can do is you just give us the information. We'll just charge it directly to your account. So you don't even have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it. We just withdraw it every month for your benefit. Oh, thank you for offering me that service. I, I appreciate it. You're doing that with such a loving, kind spirit. You seem eager just to suck the, the money right out of my account. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
they charged me monthly. Guess what? I don't have to guess every second of the month. It just happens like clockwork. They get their money. You know what? Wouldn't it be good if we had the same philosophy when it came to the house of God? And most people, when they give, they think about it. You know, preacher, I'm going to have to pray about this. You don't even have to pray about it. They made a commitment. Revival took place in their hearts. And they said, listen, we will charge ourselves. We're just going to make sure that it happens every single month. I'm glad that 25 years ago I made a commitment to God and said, God, I'm going to be faithful to give. Now, listen, it's hard for me to comprehend 10% because it's so long ago. That thinking doesn't even register with me. Now the philosophy is totally different, has nothing to do with a percentage. It has to do with God is the owner of everything that I have. Whatever he tells me to give, I give. I don't even think about it. It doesn't even hurt anymore. Now, if you're just starting, it may hurt. You know, these preachers say, give till it hurts. That is definitely not God's philosophy. That may be 2%. That may be, for some of you, a nickel, a quarter. <laughs> a, a, a give until it hurts. Uh, give until it feels good. Amen. Thank God, I can't remember it ever hurting. Now, I know there was a point, it's just a long time ago, and I'm a very old man. So surely there was a point in my life where I was giving and it hurt. Or I was giving 10%. But that's not what these people said. They said, listen, we're going to give to God. We're going to give to the, uh, the work of God and the house of God. Uh, and we are going to make a commitment. And this commitment says we will simply charge ourselves. We want to be accountable in our giving. Look what it says in verse 34 and verse 35. The end of verse 34, look at the last phrase. It says, as it is written in the law. Look what it says in verse 36. Also the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. As it is written in the law. You know what this was? This was obedient giving. They said, whatever God says, that's what we're going to do. They had already made a commitment obey the word of God there's no way that you can be a good Christian a mature Christian and not be a generous giving Christian because God's word deals with giving can you imagine saying I'm a good father I'm just not a giving father I'm a good husband I'm just not a giving husband and let's talk to your wife about that she has a struggle trying to see your goodness and I think God struggles to see your goodness when you say, I'm a good Christian, I'm just not a giving Christian. I don't understand the whole giving concept. I think this, I think we ought to be able to go to church and enjoy the AC and the carpet and the soft views and the warm water and the nice bathroom and it shouldn't cost us anything. I think we ought to go straight down to the state offices and the city government and let them know that. We've got some members down there that think you ought to take care of. Now, if you're providing welfare for everyone else, we think you ought to provide welfare for Capital City Baptist Church. We're not just talking about free light and free water. No, sir. We're needing some new pews and some carpet on top of that. And a paint job, by the way. Parking lot is uh, struggling a little bit. We've got some cracks in the sidewalk. If you take care of that, we'd sure appreciate it. I bet we'll wait till the Lord comes back for them to lift a finger <laughs> on our behalf. No, that's not even up to them. We're not socialists. Amen. We believe that we ought to step up and participate and cooperate in the work of God. Amen. When you have a revived heart, you'll make a commitment. Your giving will be out of a heart of commitment out of a heart of obedience. But this is also systematic. Look what it says in verse 32. Verse 32, also we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves, what's it say? Yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now, why is it that they were doing this yearly? You have to understand back then everything was based upon their crops. They weren't being paid week by week or month by month. So time of harvest happened once a year. So their offerings were yearly, but most of you are not farmers. As a matter of fact, let me just take a quick brief look over this crowd. None of you are farmers. So you're not basing your substance or your living on a yearly payday. You don't have to wait till September, October. 
you get a check every two weeks or once a month or every week. So that means you get the pleasure of not waiting once a year to give. But you can walk in on Sunday morning already planned and prepared and you're ready to go. I mean, you can't keep that in your pocket. You're saying, I'm so excited that I get to participate in the things of God and, and be concerned with and cooperating with the work of God. Amen? I mean, it's jumping out of your purse. You're just saying, praise the Lord, glory to God. Pastor, can we just go ahead and start this service off with an offering? Now, you know what happens when you're in a sour spiritual state of mind? Every time I come here, they have an offering. <laughs> yep. You ought to be used to it by now. I don't know what you're so concerned about. You already trained your arm to stay in your pocket when it comes by and someone else has to pass the plate. I noticed you didn't have any problem with someone charging you when you go to the mall, J.C. Penney or Walmart. You sit down at a restaurant, and when they pass that little silver tray that we call the plate, they don't even leave it up to you what you're going to give. They actually put a piece of paper on there telling you what you owe. Yeah, the tight wad that you are, you pick it up, you look, you knew how much that food was before you ever ordered, but you still look at it. You pull out your phone, you add up every last cent. You have such a crusty heart, you leave a $2 bill as a tip. Yeah, it's called a heart problem. It was systematic, it was proportionate. Now, you know what God says about giving? It's based on your income, so it's always proportionate. Aren't you glad God didn't require everyone to give the same? And here's what he did. If you see in this chapter, he even talked about a wood offering in verse 34. We cast lots among the priests, the Levites, the people for the wood offering, which probably means there are certain people that just had nothing at all to give. So they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to still have you participate. You can go out and gather wood together and bring that into the house of God. Everyone can do something. You say, oh, I'm on a fixed income. Why well, I don't have any money. Why well, don't have... You can do something for the house of God, whether it's mowing the yard or raking the leaves or painting a wall, making some kind of sacrifice, helping you how to teach your children from the time they can hold a coin. Here's what's so funny. We're teaching our children to give. And I, one of my favorite times of the whole week is the missionary offering on Sunday night for the children. And you can see the ones that are just learning because mom or dad puts two quarters in their hand. They come up here to the plate and they look. But this is the first time in their life they've ever had two quarters. And they get up here and the flesh begins to work on them. And you know what happens? The heart holds the hands. The hands hold the money. And the heart says grip. And mom and dad are watching back there petrified because it's public shame. Their two-year-old won't release their quarter in the plate and they look and they watch and sometimes they even look and grab something out of the plate <laughs> and they run back to mom I got three quarters now and there's mom you get back down there and you put those in the plate she, you see Christianity in crisis she marches them back down rips those fingers open and throws the money in the plate and everyone else is having the time of their lives and then someone's back there saying like father like son You know, what, what did you expect that three-year-old to do? You know, come dancing down there, throwing it all to God. That child's not saved. They don't have a Holy Spirit indwelling them. You know what they are by nature? Greedy. I got to give two quarters? You got to be kidding me. What do you think God does when he looks down at his children holding on to so little saying, you, you're kidding me, $20? God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. You're gripping that $20 bill like you're going to starve to death if you actually give to me. Amen. It was systematic. Now that's New Testament also. Look what it said in 1 Corinthians 16, 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Look what it says. 
here it is, systematically given, the first day of the week, Sunday, let every one of you. Now, I don't know the word for this in the Greek, but I do know the meaning. How many know the, the meaning of every one of you in Greek? It means every one of you. Every one of you lay by. That means you come prepared to give as God hath prospered him that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, go back to Nehemiah. We're just getting distracted this morning. Go back to Nehemiah. Look what it says in verse 35. This offering was God honoring, it says, to bring the what? The first fruits. You know what God is honored with? Your first fruits. When God gives the principles of sacrifices and offerings, here's what he always emphasizes. Bring me the first fruits. Here I've had the custom for decades. When I have money, I have increase, increase of any kind. The first thing I do is separate God's part so there's never any temptation. Now, God, you have as much, this what I have, God, in my household, in my bank account, my ownings, my possession, that's all yours, God. You take anything that you want to take, whether that's a car or a house. And listen, we've, we've watched God ask great things from us and then provide always for our needs and give us an abundance. But I learned a long time ago, never to hold anything tight-fisted. God, whatever you want, it's yours. But here's what I want to make sure of. Everything I give to God is a first fruit, not a leftover. Can you imagine the surprise? Hey, Brother Gamus, want your family to come on over to our house? We're going to eat spaghetti. And he sits down, we pull out, open up the fridge, we pull out some containers. He looks at his wife. All right, we're going to have to heat this up. This is from last Monday, but hey. It was good on Monday. You know, he put it on his plate and it stays the shape of the container. You know that green stuff that's growing on the bottom, you just cut that off right there? It's still good. Hey, babe, you crack open some more spaghetti sauce. We need to probably, you know, loosen up those noodles so he can eat them. <laughs> brother Gamble's going to say, you know what? I think this is the last time I'm eating at Brother Thompson's house. If he's going to eat spaghetti, he wants it to be fresh spaghetti. He wants it to be when that package is first open. The first fruits. How is it that we're going to live our lives and say, God, you know what? I spent my whole month in my paycheck, and here's what I have left over. You can go ahead and have it. Is that an honoring to God? How is it that we say we love God, and God will see what's left over, and that will be your part? No, we're talking about the God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. Here's what I do. I first separate what is his. Say, God, before I ever touch anything else, I want you to know what is yours is separated first. I want to honor you with the first fruits. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits. That's how we honor God. With the first fruits of all thine increase. When it comes to giving, we have to understand that this is all-inclusive. Okay, this isn't talking about one aspect. And here's what we do. You know, those people that have a heart distant from God, when we talk about giving to God, they're saying, now when we talk about 10% here, now we're talking about the gross or the net. Well, in your case, we're talking about you being gross. <laughs> but the rest of us believe in honoring God. How in the world, when you're talking about God, the owner of everything, you would even consider the net? And here's what I've seen people do. It's not when they say net, they're not even talking about after taxes. They're talking about after the rent and after the light and after the food bill and after the gas bill and after their insurance. I'm tithing on $363. No wonder that's all you have left. You're living under a curse. Let me tell you how to free yourself from that. Free yourself from a mentality that is unbiblical. Because we're talking about giving. We're talking about something that is all-inclusive. Look what it says in verse 35. Bring the first fruits of the ground. The first fruits of the trees. Year by year. Verse 36. The first 
born of our sons, of our cattle, the firstlings of our herds, of our flocks, to bring to the house of God. Verse 37, that we should bring the first fruits of our dough. You know what you call that green stuff in your pocket? Dough. God was thinking thousands of years in the future. Just in case you thought tithing was about fruits and nuts, God says, no, I'm talking about 10% of your dough. Amen? God is talking about everything. It's all inclusive. He said we're supposed to give off our, all of our increase. And he said that includes your firstborn. Let me show you Bible principle in Exodus 13. Exodus 13, 2. Sanctify unto me all the firstborn whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast. What does God say? It is mine. Here's what you better be careful of. This is so inclusive. God's saying, I want you to give first your heart, your family, your children. That means more, listen, all my children are God's. But he said the firstborn male that opened the womb, this repeat in Luke chapter 2, is mine. You know what that means? That means God says Josiah is mine. You know what that means, Brother Colin? God says Lewis is mine. You know what that means, Brother Ajo? God says Carter is mine. You can like that, not like it. That's New Testament, Old Testament. That's Bible. That's God's philosophy. Miss Simpson, God looked down and said, Robert is mine. Well, I thought we were all excited at the very start of the message making a commitment to do whatever's written in the book until we see what's written in the book. Go back to verse 37. This was more than just all-inclusive. This was extremely generous because everything that we see up till verse 38 is all giving before the tithe. The shekel silver, the first fruits, the wood, all that is given to God, this is above the tithe. Look what it says in verse 37. Middle of the verse. The tithes of our ground will give them to the Levites. The same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. The priests, the sons of Aaron, shall be with Levites. When the Levites take tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes into the house of our God. Now, people say, preacher, do you believe in tithing? Absolutely. God does. I believe whatever this book says. You say, well, what about in the New Testament now? Hey, listen, tithing was not given just during the law. Tithing started way back before that with Abraham. Abraham commenced tithing and, and Jacob continued it. Yeah, we do see it commanded. In the law, by Moses, we see it commanded again in Malachi. And then we see Christ commanded it in the New Testament. In the New Testament, yes, I believe in tithing. And that's a definite proportion of our income. Now, here's what God did. God facilitated Baptists because Baptists struggle with math. <laughs> Can you imagine if God would have said, you know, I want you to give 13%. Would have taken Christians all week long to figure out what they were supposed to give to God. You know, the blessing about tithing, you just move the decimal. Right? You got $100, you give $10 to God. Now, he owns all of it. Now, here's what I like about God's commands. They're so simple. Go with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Look what God's word says. Will a man rob God? Isn't that an amazing thought? The man would actually rob God. Now, let me ask you this. If I came to you this morning, I sat down, I said, Brother Carl, I got a plan. You know the cost of everything's going up? And taxes and food and electricity and I am up to here. I mean, I'm, I'm just barely making it. But I got a plan. What's your plan? You know, there's a store around the corner from my house and there are a lot of people go through there and do business. There has to be a lot of cash in there. So, hey, you know, we, we don't even have to use real pistols. We can buy some fake pistols. Nine o'clock at night, there's hardly anyone in there, you know. We just walk in there and, you know, put it out of our pocket and tell them, hey, give us some money. You know, help us out. I'll give you half. I'll take half. You know what he'd say? You've got to be out of your mind. Will a man rob the grocery store? 
Preacher, that's not a good plan. Okay, forget that plan. I got a better plan. Okay, how about if you sit in the back row of the auditorium after we take up the offering, you sit back there. I'll distract Brother Dave. When he turns his head, you reach in, you grab as much cash as you can, stuff it in your wife's purse, and if they catch us, they'll blame it on her. You say, preacher, you're, you're out of your mind. Now, if you wouldn't rob the corner store, if you wouldn't rob money out of the plate, why would you rob God? He said, it's all mine. And now look what he says about the tithe. Will a man rob God? But you say, you know, the typical innocent look that comes from the Baptist Christian. In what have we robbed thee? And uh, God says, in tithes and in offerings, you're cursed with a curse. Why would you want to live with a curse over your life? Life is difficult enough. Let me just say this, folks. Here's what I don't understand. I've been living on very little for 20 years. 20 years, and I watch people that make all kinds of money to Incomes in the house. Our house had never had two incomes. Our house had never had one good income. <laughs> two incomes and they can't survive. Two, we're not talking about with seven or eight kids. We're talking about Capital City where three is a lot. <laughs> Pastor, you've got to understand, I'm feeding a family of three. God bless you. <laughs> and mom works and dad works and the kids work. And you're just barely surviving. You know why? You better check and make sure you're not living with the curse of God on your home. How's it that we can live with one income, very little, but blessed by God? How's it that you can drive a car with 185,000 miles that just doesn't break down? You want to live with the blessing of God? How's it that you have a car with 50,000 miles, you can't keep it out of the shop? There's an explanation there. Was a preacher, I've had people tell me, well, you've just been lucky. Never confuse luck with the blessings of God. You can live much better with 90% in God's blessing, 70% God's blessing, than you can live with 100% in the curse of God on your life. How can you expect to be blessed if I knew every time you came to my house, you were taking something from me? Baby, you know where the Afghan went? I don't know. Dan came over and it was gone when he left. <laughs> you know, it's the strangest thing. Babe, I walked in the garage and the couch is gone. <laughs> you know, when we took off, we all went to the kitchen. Guess I heard the garage door go up and come back down. And as soon as we went back, it was gone. And I think that guy's, I think that guy's got a plan going. He's working a plan. <laughs> Dan comes over. God bless you. Come in, Dan. You know what that happened just a couple times. I Probably, in my great love of Christianity, I'd say, Dan, if you came over to take something, help yourself. You know. <laughs> God bless you, brother. Whatever you want. I don't know if I'm a big enough Christian to do that. I'd probably grab him, shake him, say, what in the world are you doing? How's it you call me my friend, and then you come in and steal what is mine? Now, here's what God says about the tithe. He doesn't say, come to the house and give your tithes. What's the verb he uses? Verse 10, bring, because you don't give a tithe. You bring it. If I give Brother Mike my car, if I loan him my car and say, hey, you can use this this week, I don't say, hey, would you give me that car on Friday? Because it's not his to give. And I don't thank him for giving it to me. I say, bring me the car on Friday. That's mine. Who's the one that ought to be thankful? Mike is mad. Well, I brought him his car back. He wasn't even thankful. <laughs> no, you had it for a week. And God says, you bring me back. What is mine? I blessed you with life. I blessed you with health. I blessed you with air. I blessed you with the ground. I blessed you with everything. I'm the owner. 
That 10% is untouchable. That's mine. You just you don't give that. Somebody thought, I, I gave to God this morning. If it's anything under the tithe, you brought to God what was his. He said, bring it to me. And then he said this. He said, prove me. He says, you can test me on this one. You prove me. If I'm not going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. The same way, how many of you ever had a, a five-year-old offer to pour you some tea? Why do you get so nervous? You put your glass in the middle of the table and it's like, ooh. I'm sorry. Not a good job. Did you know that's the way God pours? When someone delights in giving, and there is a law of reaping and sowing, I wish God would pour me out a blessing. God said, last time you came to my house, you robbed me. And the last time, and the last time, the time before that, and the last time? Boy, you've been stealing from me for years and calling yourself a Christian? And you want me to bless your marriage and bless your home and bless your children, bless your finances? Have you lost your mind? Yeah, you know what? You've gotten into that whole grace teaching where, you know, grace eliminates it. I just go out there and live like the devil and rob from God and he's going to show me grace. Mm. That is not Bible. God said, if you want my blessings, now, if it, if it were just for that, I would tithe. But verse 11 is additional motivation. I will, if you tithe, what's he saying? Rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Now you have to remember back then their income depended upon their crops. And he said, I'll rebuke the termite, I'll rebuke the locust and the grasshopper, the sun, the heat, and the drought. But I control all of that. Let me just tell you what happens. You don't bring me what is rightfully mine. I'm just going to say, you know what? You can go this year without any rain. You know what? Some of you have been a year without any rain. You know what you better do? I learned a long time ago. Nothing more important in my life than giving to God what is rightfully His. Not going to touch it. Not going to. I'm not a thief. Now, I'm not just talking about 10%. If you haven't reached 10%, you need to jump on board this morning. I'm talking about saying, God, what I have is yours. Whatever you want, whatever you speak to me about today, it's yours, and I'm happy to give it. But when you have a revival of the heart and the Holy Spirit is moving, here's what you're going to do. You're going to commit to obeying that word the written word of God. You're going to commit to separating yourself from this world. You're going to commit to helping the work of God, attending the house of God. And this year being a better steward of what God has given you and saying, God, whatever is yours, I'm not going to touch it. I'm a steward of your goods. I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to steal it. It's not mine. And I'll make a commitment to honor you with everything I have.